Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. Hello to everyone and a very warm welcome to this week's installment of Beyond Governance at 101.9 High FM. On this, uh, on this show, we seek to contribute constructively in the current and social economic affairs which shapes the country's economic trajectory. Let's continue to have dialogues on issues such as productivity, competitiveness, intellectual property, benchmarking, ethics, and of course, corporate governance. Any of these conversations would certainly sharpen our posture as a community that seeks to be counted among the best in the world. Once again, welcome to Beyond Governance at 101.9 High FM, and yours truly is Nimrod Mbele. As always, I'm delighted to bring you the beloved listener of the show, thought leaders and captains of industry, to shed light on their lived experience in tackling some of the very complex environment. And certainly today, we are not going to fail you. If you miss our previous show, not to worry. Simply download a podcast and listen to a fascinating conversation I had with Ellen Bokoki, who is an executive at the South African Chamber of Business and Commerce, Sarkin Brief. In that interview, Ellen gave insights with regards to the outcome of the fourth South African Investment Conference, which has been supported by Saki. Having said that, he, you know, highlighted a number of critical areas which uh, needed to change the investment landscape in the country. And key to that was the ability of state to deliver. For the state to deliver, we need to appoint competent management to address challenges and implement policies. You might also add that, secondly, we also need to foster a culture of excellence in the public sector. The two variables, in my view, are fundamentally important if you are serious about service delivery. What do you think of the template? If we were to look at competency or meritocracy and organizational culture, that is fitting. Surely, I think we are likely to uh, drive the economy back to where it's supposed to be or back where it once be. At some point, we have registered uh, GDP growth of about 4% during the Taiwan banking era, and we need to bring those glorious things back. As we start the show, let me acknowledge the technical projects of the show, without, of which without them, nothing this show would not have happened. Uh, on that note, let me say thank you to Travisa, and of course a big thank you to Vusima Singer. Colleagues, I'm eternally grateful for your support, and thank you very much. Uh, moving on swiftly, let me welcome the esteemed guest, Dr. Reverend Vusi Vilakati, as well as Dustin Ramahadze. Vusi is the head of business integration at Standard Bank, and Dustin is the executive of Global Farmers Connect Africa. At the core of our conversation is the importance of ethical leadership amidst a recovery from state capture as well as a COVID-19 pandemic. So I think the colleagues are best positioned to really give us insight on how to take the country forward. Our SMS line is 34519. The telegram is 061-895-1095. And of course, your views and thoughts are most welcome via my Twitter handle, which is at Mbele Nimrod. Without any wasting of time, let me take this opportunity to welcome the colleagues, uh, Dr. Vusi Vilakati, as well as Dustin Ramahanadza. Colleagues, you're most welcome to Beyond Governance, and thank you for gracing the show with your presence. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Nimrod. It's a real pleasure to be able to join in the team and the family, and greetings to all the listeners as well. My name is Dustin Ramahanadza. I am the global CEO for Farmers Connect Africa. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, uh, Dustin, for that uh, introduction. And uh, Vusi, please 
Thank you. Thank you so much. Greetings to you, Nimrod. Greetings to the listeners and greetings to the esteemed Bishop Ramahaneta. I am Reverend Dr. Vusi Vilagati. I am the head of business integration for client solutions with Standard Bank. Um, and I am a researcher in African leadership practice and consciousness. I I am so delighted to be part of this evening's conversation. Thank you for the invite. You're most welcome, colleagues. I want to start off by, um, you know, uh, quoting Warren Buffett um, when he once said, in looking for people to hire, you look for three qualities, integrity, intelligence, and energy. And if they don't have the first, which is integrity, the others will kill you. And I just want to give um, the bishop um, his first bite in terms of what he thinks of that particular quote from Warren Buffett. Thank you so much, Dr. Nimrod. I fully, fully agree. Those are quite foundational statements from uh, Warren. They obviously reflect on the values and behaviors that contribute to unique societal or psychological spaces that will also help us to drive into issues of environmental care and all that. So having said all that, you will then realize that the culmination of all the aspects uh, flecked by Warren would really bring us into otherwise um, created culture, as it were, which in my uh, bishopic uh, definition, I would say, is the sum total of our past, of our current assumptions, our experiences, our philosophies, and of course, our shared values as a nation that will then begin to keep us together and drive us as we continue to build the Africa that we want. So I am in full agreement with Warren. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Bishop, for that insight. Vosi, your take on that very interesting quotation by Warren Buffett. I would concur with the fact that it, it, it is a very important quote because it, it calls us to the place of values in the place of employing one's agency in the public space. I think much, much more importantly, here in South Africa, we have seen very intelligent people do very, very horrible things in the public space and, and very energized people taking public office and doing, you know, very corrupt things. So the place of integrity in leadership is a critical, is a critical, critical factor for for the way that we want to build this country and build the institutions that will make this country thrive. And I think for me, the code combines basic things. We, the way we behave and the way we think and the way we do things are important that they kind of find a cohesive center that holds them and integrity becomes that center for me. Colleagues, thank you very much for that insight. I think that said pretty much lay a very solid foundation for the impending conversation that you're going to have. Um, let's have quickly take a short break. We'll come back just in a second. Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. Welcome back. You are listening to Beyond Governance at 101.9. Hi, FM. My name is Nimrod Tembele, and I'm joined by Dr. Vusi Vilagatu, who is the head of business uh, solutions at Standard Bank, as well as Dustin Ramanadza, who is an executive at Global Farmers Connect Africa. The core of our conversation with the esteemed colleague is the whole issue of ethical leadership amidst economic recovery from state capture as well as COVID-19 uh, pandemic. 
colleagues, as we proceed, if we may, um, just you know, debunk a little bit on our understanding, perhaps maybe your views uh, on the, the the distinction or the difference between ethics and law, and the, the two often used interchangeably. Perhaps maybe let me start with Vusi. Your understanding of ethics and how is it different, if at all, from law? There's a number of statements, and I think it's one of my ethics professors at varsity. He used to write for four statements on the board, and they would go something like this. Give me an example of something ethical and legal, unethical and illegal, legal but unethical, and ethical but illegal. That for me is the fact that there could be things that are legal, but they could be unethical. So the, 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 the next invitation is that although by legislation you can't contain certain practices and certain behaviors and organize certain systems in society, but there could be aspects of those things that are not necessarily ethical. So there, there could be people that would say, somehow in terms of the letter of the law, I am free and I have been found by the law to have not done anything wrong. But still, the behavior that might have been under scrutiny might still be unethical. So, so th those are the things that, so for me, ethics is an extra. So at the least, the law holds us together. But ethics is that moral um, part of our discourse that ascribes to values, integrity, accountability, and the values that we want to hold society together for the common good. My relationship with what is perceived to be the greater good for all society, for my relationships with other people, for my relationships with public resources, for my relationship with my neighbors, communities, and everyone else that's around us. So ethics be, speak to the bigger picture of what holds us together as a common society, over and above what the law, the letter of the law can describe. Thank you very much for that interesting observation. Um, Bishop, your take on this? I fully concur with Doc on that one uh, as well, because there is obviously a much closer relationship between values and ethics and culture and the rule of law. And I think the nature of the relationship is such that they are not competing. They are rather complementary. So you've got to be able to, to then deal with issues of uh, diffusion whereby you are able to say, with all these great intents, with all these um, theoretical positioning, just in terms of uh, what constitute ethical behaviors and, 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 to what extent are we able to draw that down to the community, draw that down to the most basic and most, uh, you know, the, 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 the soldiers, uh, the foot soldiers flow. Because if you are then able to do that, you start appreciating the whole concept of the, the, the sharedness nature of the values so that you can begin to speak about shared values. Because if we don't do that, then you, you realize these values will begin to sort of, you know, live in isolation. So we've got pockets of excellence as we go, but then we lack that integration. And I think this is where you start saying, but at what stage do we, as a country, begin to build capacity to deal with institutionalizing uh, some of these um, 
principles that are considered ethical, that list behaviors, and, and, and. So I'm in full agreement with what the talk has just said there. Thank you very much for the observation. I think we, we pretty much align in terms of, of the thinking. The natural progression of our conversation is such that if we have had close to, the last time I said, close to 20 commissions of inquiry into this or that, the biggest one, of course, being the commission of inquiry into state capture, which cost this country close to a billion rand. This suggests to me, and of course the listener out there, that the extent to which the cut of ethical quagmire is. In your assessment, how deep is this cut? If I were to venture, I think the cut is very deep. Um, um, if we were to spend a billion sorting out problems of other billions that were taken from state, <laughs> state, state coffers by some probably systemic processes, one of the things that is core to, to the fact that we've had so many commissions is the fact that we trusted people with public office and we hope that they would behave within the scope and the mandates of those offices that we trusted them with. And we discovered that somewhere in the process they failed to live up to the mandates of that. So there is one issue that I think this country is dealing with, that we appoint people that are not able to contain the limits and the ethical requirements and the way that a public office has to be contained in this country. So we appoint people to government and in other sectors across the levels of this country, um, provincial and even local government. And somehow those people don't know how to hold a public office or they don't have the capacity to hold that public office. Mm -hmm. And in that process, we then find people that are unable to achieve those things and they make ethical blunders that lead into all of the inquiries that need to happen thereafter. But there is also the rot that happens because in our public system, in, that has happened in a number of ways. Over the last while, people have called this whole thing the pandemic of corruption that we're dealing with as a country, or the pandemic of greed and selfishness, as some people have referred it to. Some of these things that have happened in the public space they were systemic issues, the erosion of public systems, sometimes intentionally by a few in order to weaken the systems so that as the systems get weaker, certain actions could be taken. Or in some cases, some systems of governance, dysfunctions were intentionally created to allow for certain processes to be flaunted for expediency of a particular few that were to benefit from whatever the transactions were. In some cases, then in the weakening of those systems, in the erosion of the structures of public good, or in the erosion of structures like boards, or boards in SOEs and in other sectors, or even in business, the erosion of the powers of the boards and the decision-making processes of the boards, in the erosion of those things, systems broken down. And there's a need to regroup at a fundamental level at many levels of our society. Thank you very much for that. And I could not agree with you more, particularly on the issue of hiring out of leadership. What you're saying is there has been a deliberate and systemic attempt to render key government institutions vulnerable for manipulation, vulnerable for, for, for corruption. And this begins to say, based on what you've seen, the depth of cut, as it were. And, and Bishop, on the very same point, um, how do we turn around the situation? First and foremost, we now have picked up that we've got the, the cut is too deep. 
to even begin to imagine. But surely in terms of the recovery, we need to start somewhere. How do we begin the process of recovery? Thank you so much, uh, Animrod. Reverend Fusi here made some very serious discoveries just around the impact of unethical behaviors and conduct around government spheres. And But I think, of course, the, the cut goes even deeper. It affects other sectors of our society. Myself as the clergyman, of course, I would, I would say without doubt that even the church as it is, is grossly affected by unethical leadership. You know, it, it, it eats into our gains as a country. Um, it, 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 it almost dilutes the essence of key meaning of our faith-based organizations. So our country is bleeding across the various sectors. What is it that we can do? I think we really need to create some form of deliberate capacity to deal with some of these ills, to begin to look into issues of redress, for example, to begin to say, what is it that we can do? What is it that can be done to actually bring some of these issues into the surface and start addressing them uh, head on? Because if we do not do that, it means we'll continue to bleed, and that is definitely not ideal. So uh, I'm sure that uh, we, we may just as well need a platform whereby we're able to deal with these things and expose them and bring them to the, to the surface. Thank you very much for that insight, Bishop. Let's have a quick break again. We'll just come back in a second. Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. This is Beyond Governance at 101.9 High FM. My name is Numerous Timbele, and I'm joined by Dr. Vusi Vilakat, who is the head of business at Thunder Bank, as well as Bishop Dustin Amanahadza, who is a global chief executive officer at Farmers Connect Africa. All what you're saying is we as a society need to frown upon when we see um, opulence in a sea of poverty. That's obviously looking at this issue from a ethical point of view or from a moral point of view. Um, but of course, people displaying their wealth, it's not necessarily illegal. They're entitled to display their wealth. But surely, from a moral point of view, when your neighbor is hungry, you can't serve sushi, God knows where. We have not, we have picked up some instances of people serving sushi and all sorts of stuff, and which almost begins to question the moral fiber of certain individuals. So for us, as you're saying, we need to, the country's bleeding. If the country's bleeding from an ethical point of view, we need to resuscitate it. And by bringing all the critical stakeholders, institutions to a point where we, un- we fully understand our role from an ethical point of view. Am I correct to sum up your view in that, in that fashion? Absolutely. We definitely need to respond to this. And I think in doing so, we would also obviously be contributing to promoting and maintaining rather higher standards of ethics. We'll be looking into issues of uh, dealing with, you know, your service provision, whereby services are provided impartially, fairly, equitably, without any bias. There is a critical issues in our country of resources management. Somebody will think that, you know what, this is basic, but I think we've got um, some serious challenges around making sure that our resources are used efficiently and effectively. How do we deal with issues of uh, responding to the people's needs, for example? How do we get um, citizens to actively participate in the various structures, such as 
policy making and, and advocacy and 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 but i think in the end we need the rendering of an accountable transparent and 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 developmental uh public administration systems but i think it obviously goes beyond just that it taps into the private sector it takes taps into your organized civic society it taps into how ourselves as individuals practice uh, responsible citizenship and i think there is obviously a handful of things that day that we could be looking at just in terms of uh, redress and looking into uh, developing capacity to actually deal with the social ills. Thank you very much for that insight, which is quite illuminating indeed. If I could just bring in Busi, just before we took a break um, of air, uh, you made mention of what you referred to as a notion of raft, um, which, which I thought was quite profound, which may you please just refer back to, to that notion of rough and the extent to which if rough as in what it means and if rough is being eroded in the system i'm referring to what you put it out earlier as in responsibility accountability fairness and transparency which makes up the raft you know can you just please bring listeners in your confidence in that particular because i thought uh, what you and i discussed of it was quite critical you know nimrod i think there is the issue of how we begin to reconstruct the bishop is right Everyone, it is an active citizenry kind of practice. That's the that's the fundamental thing. Active citizenry for me says, if we elect somebody here as a ward councillor or whatever at any level of society, we shouldn't only be there to support them during the election, but we should then be there to support them after election and hold them accountable after that. And when we hold each of these levels of people in the public space accountable. That is, in one way, active citizenry. To say, if we're talking of ethical leadership, I often use the concept, as I made reference to, of it, that we, for me, enacting ethical leadership in the public space is one of the critical challenges for our country at the moment. Enacting ethical leadership. And for me, that is that a kind of leadership and governance systems that are supported by this concept I call raft. And raft in this case would mean that we enact responsible leadership, responsibility, and leadership that's accountable, leadership that is that ascribes to fairness, and leadership that ascribes to transparency. If leaders are not responsible, if leaders fail to be accountable, if leaders are not fair, if leaders are not transparent, that's the ground for corruption, for crime, for theft, and for all of the other evils that follow through in all of those kinds of things. So the premise for me is when we begin to create an ethical leadership kind of stuff, there is the two components of it. One, it is the ethics of governance. How do we create a system of accountability in the public space that is supported by this raft principle of trans responsibility, accountability, fairness, and transparency. The second aspect is, it's the governance of ethics. And you can see how I'm differentiating the concepts. The ethics of governance is how we account to all the systems of governance that we've created. But the governance of ethics is how do we manage the process of ethics in the organization? If it's if it's with the legislature, if it's with um, the executive, if it's with the provincial um, levels, at any level, how do we manage the process 
of governance of ethics within that? Do we create clean policies of ethics? Do we create clean processes of accountability? Do we create clean processes that will make everything from tenders to execution to appointments of, of personnel to the distribution of resources? All of those systems should pass through each of these kinds of principles. And when we do that, we are creating a system that begins to account to itself and to the public. Interesting observation and insight, making reference to um, the ethics of government and governance of ethics. Interesting um, juxtaposition of the two, for they don't mean exactly the same thing. And I appreciate how you've actually unpacked them for us. But before we proceed, let's have a quick break again. We'll just come back in a second. Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. It's amazing how time flies when you're having fun. Uh, if you've just joined us, don't go any further. This is Beyond Governance at 101.9 High FM. My name is Numerous and I'm joined by Dr. Vusi Vilakat, who's the head of business at Standard Bank, as well as Bishop Dustin Amanahadza, who's a global chief executive officer at Farmers Connect Africa. The whole issue of ethical leadership amidst economic recovery from the state capture, as well as, as COVID-19. You have heard from our esteemed colleagues, um, if you've just joined us, bringing to forth very interesting observations um, around how deep is the cut, what went wrong, particularly from ethic and law point of view, quite intriguing, uh, I must say. But as we gravitate in towards the end of the show, one big item which I would want them to really reflect on is the enforcement side of the law. Um, we have been told that the there's been a systemic erosion of key, key officials or functionalities of the state was deliberately made to be dysfunctional. We somehow picking up the loose ends we get in there. How important is law enforcement in enforcing ethical conduct? Far too long we've had individuals who have found wanting from an ethical point of view and legally, and yet very little repercussions, at least from public space. Uh, we all know that a correlation between public confidence and in investment. Most people would strongly argue that the level of investor confidence is as a result of failure or inability or perceived failure of the state to be enforcing the, the law. If I could just bring in uh, the bishop here, and of course, uh, Dr. Villagazi, in how do we recalibrate the enforcement side of the law to reinforce ethical uh, behavior. Thank you, Nimrod. It is actually quite interesting how I think the issues of ethical discipline must have their foundation supported by the legal side. And it's not always possible because you would then have somebody who acts uh, unethically, but not necessarily illegally. At what stage do you then create that support capacity? that things that are deemed unethical are actively supported by the capacity on the law side so that uh, perpetrators could then be brought to justice. It, it, it really just becomes a problem if people can know that they can behave unethically, but legally they're not found wanting. And that for me speaks to the setup in terms of our judicial system and the law of the land in terms of saying, to what extent do we invest capacity into bringing the two closer? 
When you speak about values, for example, values and ethics very closely linked. However, values on their own don't really do anything. A company could have a, a, a value of quality, for example, but still produce substandard products. The question is, when you say quality, what are you saying? How do you define it? How do you know if it's quality, if it's not? Is it blue? Is it red? So the rules of conduct, we should follow from a particular values, should then be well articulated and really not just be ignored. But I think quite importantly, uh, putting values into action is much more of an issue for me than the issue of what values are. Because most companies, for example, may have gone through that route of articulating their values in the mission statement and wherever else. But uh, there is still so much more to learn because having these fine sounding values for the nations without you know, anything to show for them in terms of what they are able to produce, it just becomes problematic for me. So yes, the hand of the law in terms of enforcement must be seen to be strong, but at the same time, we must then also, of course, build that supportive uh, capacity so that whoever is then found wanting on the other side is able to be brought to justice, is able to be brought to book. Thank you for that insight, Bishop. You spoke like, like a true bishop in the podcast. <laughs> 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 and I think what I've picked up from Bishop is the the supporting side of things. In as much as we're expecting the law enforcement agencies to do their work, uh, what is coming out from him is support. But over and above that, your overall assessment, the inability or perceived failures of the state to enforce the very rules, which by their nature are meant to reinforce of, you know, the ethical conduct, as it were. Your take on that? Nimrod, you've just made reference to a number of things. One of them is the inability issues or the perceived inabilities in this state. But I think you've also made reference to the issue of public trust and investor confidence. One of the things that create trust and cohesion in a society, it's when those that are ordinary citizens like ourselves feel like the systems of governance are watertight, they are clean, the people that we've appointed seem to ascribe to a greater value. They inspire confidence in the ordinary citizen and they inspire a form of citizenry. And in this case, I would say we came into, into COVID with already flavoring trust in the public system. And so now we are needing to recover and reboot from COVID and also rebuild public trust in the institutions. There are some of these institutions that were tested by COVID themselves. There are inequalities that were exposed by COVID. So the issue of really strengthening public institutions of a law enforcement is key to part of the recovery process. That we are able to say those that were involved with elements of corruption, irregardless whether it's with the Zondo Commission, the State Capture Commission, or some of the inquiry into some of those that that mis, uh, the misadministration and corruption with the monies that were earmarked for COVID response, or all of the other commissions that you made reference to. Some of those commissions, the reports are gathering dust and there's nothing that has been really done to execute justice and make sure that people are brought to book. So my sense is this, that you'd restore public trust by making sure that prosecutions are swift, judgments are swift, 
there's clarity, there's the timelines for these things are clean and quick and swift without cutting corners or maybe probably judging people unfairly, but make sure that the systems, people know that if something has been taken up by our law enforcement agencies, they are going to make it happen, they are going to deliver, they are going to make it happen. And that, for me, restores public trust. So part of the thing for us, with all of the corruption issues that we're dealing with, one of the things that's lacking for us, it is to make sure that we are able to bring to book people as quick and as fast as possible for us as the public to see that our government and our public institutions are able to self-regulate and restore public trust in the way that they execute justice and deliver fairness for us. Um, let's have quickly take a short break. We'll come back just in a second. Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research the science of decision-making. If you've just joined us, we are pretty much on the final lap of our conversation. We are joined by uh, Dr. Vusi Vilakat, who is the head of business integration at Standard Bank, as well as Bishop Dustin Ramanahadza, who's a global chief executive officer at Farmers Connects Africa. Colleagues, just a pity, you know, we, we would have had more time on, on these issues, uh, but you're parting short, Bishop, on recovery route from ethical point of view. And, and in your own space, what is the fraternity doing in reviving ethical conduct, which appears to have taken a nosedive? Thank you, Nimrod. I think there's quite a number of things that we can do, and there are a number of things that can be done. I'm a writer myself. In the next week or so, I am launching two of my latest publications, and one of them really focuses into issues of ethical leadership. I'll give you one example, just as a parting shot, by the way. The issue of dealing with resources within our institutions, be it faith-based, corporate, you know, private space and all that. Just as much as it is a challenge for government, it is a challenge for other sectors of society as well. As a clergyman myself, in the church space, one of the books that I'll be launching in the next week deals with critically looks into resources mobilization practices, policies, because we, we then find that Most of this contradicts provisions of the Black Book. They exploit congregants. Apostle Paul has a way of putting it, and he talks about the fleecing of the flock. And and I think that can be closely linked to ethical conduct, even within the church environment. So I think that if you were to get your hands into such publications, there's a lot of very empowering information there that once you lay your hands to, you are then able to have other perspectives and other views and get um, just, you know, empowered in terms of the understanding of the core issues, what is expected and what is not expected. But I think in the broader picture, there is a lot that we can do as society. We need to shy away from pointing fingers to say government must do that, government must not do that. I think we have to look into a holistic approach, as it were, so that would incorporate the, the whole concept of inclusivity for visibility. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for that insight, good Bishop. Uh, Dr. Vilagas, your parting shot? Thank you so much, Imrod. I think the, the Bishop has said a mouthful there. But I want to give just, you know, those kind of, PowerPoint bullets like kind of things as my party mm-hmm. should. I think when we want to really build um, an ethical culture in society, enact ethical leadership, the first thing for me is ethical sensitivity and awareness. Ethical sensitivity is that we raise a cadre of leadership that is able to 
to see ethical nuances in things and in public um, realities. And then we need moral courage or ethical courage. What Robert Kennedy called, was said about moral courage is the rare commodity than great intelligence and bravery in society. Yet it is the essential and a vital quality that we need to change the world and we need to change the trajectory of our countries. So moral courage. I think for me, one of the things that we need in the public space now are leaders that are going to display moral courage in every sector of society. That we will have leaders that will progressively display and make visible forms of ethical leadership that are going to be audible about ethical issues, that are going to speak and talk to ethics in every corner. We need to even begin to profile some of those leaders that are leading ethically in the public space, rather than just only naming the bad apples, but also begin to say there are some good apples that we can begin to profile their stories. We need to teach leaders at every level what is ethical decision making? Because when we do that, we are beginning to build a culture of leadership and we are going to have leaders that are going to be committed in every sector of society to delivering ethical behavior and ethical leadership. Then a next component as a last component would be we build governance structures that are going to be supported by ethical strategies and codes of practice that will institutionalize ethics in every sector. In that way, we might begin to see a recovery of the losses that we've made. So that's a long shot as a conclusion, but I think that would be for me what it is to really build an ethical culture. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Colleagues, unfortunately, we're going to have a little bit there. We have had absolute beautiful, beautiful insights. Um, if we have had more time, we'll definitely go deeper into some of these issues. I take this opportunity to thank you once again for coming through. Thank you so much, Nimrod. It has been absolute pleasure sharing uh, some of this concept with uh, captains of industries. I have full respect for Dr. Vosi, Reverend Vosi. Um, I'm quite encouraged by some of the propositions he's made in terms of dealing with the way forward. And I am so grateful for the invitation as well. Thank you so much for inviting us. You're most welcome indeed. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Nimrod. Thank you so much, um, Bishop Ramahanetza. Thank you for such a a beautiful time of engagement. I look forward to engagement beyond the space. So thank you to the listeners and thanks to you, Nimrod, for hosting us so beautifully. You're most welcome indeed. Well, here we go. And that was interesting conversation uh, from Dr. Vusivilakar, who's the head of business integration at Standard Bank, and Bishop Dustin Ramanazi, uh, who's a global chief executive officer at Farmers Connect Africa, giving us their perspective on the importance of ethical leadership amidst economic recovery and state capture. Let's do this again next week. Shalom. We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world. And now it is the time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point. It is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making.